Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. You're listening to episode number 27 of the GateWorld Podcast. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Today, David and I are talking about Stargate Atlantis. We'll be looking at the entire five-year run of the show, talking about what we think worked and what maybe didn't work. We'll also give you a preview of our new interview with Stargate Universe actor Brian J. Smith, and we have some Stargate news, site features, and listener mail. Now that President Barack Obama has been briefed about the Stargate program, he's been cleared to listen to this episode. The Gate World Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner. And I'm David Reed. Welcome to the podcast. David, how are you doing this week? Greetings and salutations and all that crap. Last week we talked about Battlestar having just started, and this week Lost kicked off. And I know you haven't seen it. The most recent episode of Lost that I've seen is the season two finale. I'm a DVD boy when it comes to Lost, so I haven't gotten around to watching three and four yet, but... uh, Yeah, but you're plowing through them now. I am plowing through them, trying to catch back up. (laughs) I enjoyed the fifth season premiere for the most part, but it actually uh, didn't quite excite me entirely. And I think it was because it didn't necessarily focus on any particular character, like like most of the good episodes in the past have. Well, plot development is important, um, but it's it's nice to see some action too. So I'm I'm looking forward to this show. It's just one of those that I've been looking forward to to advancing through for a long time. I've been stuck on season two for. A uh, couple years now, I finished season two and and basically put the show on the shelf, yeah. and uh, I'm I'm happy to take it off and continue that arc. I'm a huge Stargate fan, but I don't have any qualms saying that right now I think Lost is the best show on television, and I'm really, really excited to hear what you think about seasons three and four once you get there. I'm looking forward to telling you what I think. <laughs> Stargate news. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for January 27th, 2009. Last week we announced that Brian J. Smith has been cast in Stargate Universe. He'll be playing Lieutenant Matthew Scott on the show. Uh, If you want to get an early look at Brian, he's doing a guest appearance on Law & Order next month. Brian appears in the February 11th episode of NBC's Venerable Drama, playing a character named Derek Sherman. And the Ark of Truth has been given a debut date on television. The Futon Critic has reported that Sci-Fi Channel is going to air the inaugural full-length film on Friday, March 27th at 9 p.m., following a rebroadcast of the final episode of Battlestar. There actually are some people who apparently haven't seen Ark of Truth on, on DVD. You know, not every Stargate fan is going to go out there and plunk down their $15 to buy it. Somebody out there, I think, hasn't seen it. Cool, and they'll be able to enjoy it with commercials. With commercials. What a great (laughs) way to watch a movie. GateWorld Features. GateWorld's new interview with Connor Trenier, who plays Michael on Stargate Atlantis, is now available on the website. David headed over to Los Angeles and caught up with Connor face-to-face, so this one is a video interview. And David, just remind us a little bit about what you guys talked about. We mainly talked about the prodigal, uh, and we talked about the character's developments, what Connor would like to have seen, what he enjoyed about what he did, the stunts, the comparisons between Enterprise and Atlantis having both uh, nearly 100 and 100 episodes, respectively, Hmm. uh, and how he had a feeling... Uh, when he was up there shooting the prodigal, that uh, the the hammer might come down soon, that the show was being canceled, and he he talks about sharing dinner with uh, Momoa and Flanagan and discussing that very thing just weeks before they found out that the show was going to be gone. So hmm. it's 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 an interesting piece, and that's currently available now. And I apologize for the setting sun. We we caught Connor right when the sun was setting. So at the beginning of the piece, it's really bright and pretty, and at the end of the piece, it's really dark. So <laughs> I'm going to adjust the the contrast so that it's relatively constant throughout the piece, but he's going to look a little odd near the end of it. So I apologize for that. Speaking of Brian J. Smith, you also talked with him recently. Yes, I got on the horn with Brian J. Smith uh, last week and talked with him for an hour and a half. Wow. An amazing young guy, just a couple of years older than I am. Uh, originally, it was just to reach out a hand of introduction, say hello to him, but we found ourselves just 
not stopping. So mm-hmm. I uh, asked him if he wanted to do an interview. He said, sure, let's talk. And so... Now, he's, he hasn't even started filming yet. They don't go up to, to Vancouver to start shooting until next month, a couple weeks from now. Right. So he's, he's going up there on the 30th of January, and they don't start shooting until the 11th of February. They're going to do some, some hair and makeup tests. You know, they're going to run lines, mm-hmm. see what works and what doesn't. So this interview, this is one of my favorite pieces in recent memory because this interview specifically gave us a chance to get to know this guy before he got to know his character. It's a very, very unique insight into him personally um, because there are no spoilers in this piece. It's not talking about universe. It's not talking about the character of Lieutenant Matthew Scott. It's simply me getting to know him. And it's not so much an interview as it is a chat. Just two guys talking. And some people have already listened to it, and they say that it really lets them in on who he is as a person. Um, But what's interesting, though, is he doesn't talk about universe or about the four scripts that he's read so far or about his character. But how he talks around it, around the series and around his character, is extremely interesting. And by the end of the interview, by the end of the hour and a half that I spent with him on the phone... I was 200% more jazzed about Universe than I was before. You really get a feel for what the show is becoming and what it's cooking up and how excited, how genuinely, genuinely excited he is to be a part of the project. I I was perfectly content, you know, here in New York, you know, doing the... It's hard. New York is, you know, not an easy place. Don't get me wrong, but I, I was... You know, I kind of liked my life. You know, I was doing off-Broadway shows, working with new writers on exciting, you know, new American plays and, mm-hmm. you know, some classic American plays. And I was like, this is this is what I was supposed to be doing as an actor. Um, I feel really comfortable and, and satisfied doing this. And then, you know, my agent was like, hey, look, we got this uh, script from a sci-fi show and we want to put you on tape for it. We think you're great for the role. And, you know, initially there was some reservation you know i had an idea in my head of what you know a sci-fi show was and i was just immediately like no i'm I'm not interested i'm not interested and my agent was like and my manager too they're like read the script Mm -hmm. so it's like okay (laughs) yeah and i read the script and i called them like right afterwards and i was like i i yeah i want to do this i definitely want to do this but man you know the first time i read them all through I cried. I know that sounds really dorky and, and, and silly, but really? it was so exciting to, to read that. And, and this was after I got cast, right? And I, and I, it was so exciting to read that and go, my God, I'm going to get to say those words. I'm going to get to be on that ship, you know? I'm gonna yeah, be the destiny. Situations. You know, it, it was so, so exciting. And, and because of some of the things that he said – it really has me reconsidering some of my preconceptions about this show. Hmm. And just from this interview, I think I'm going to go on record and say that I think the guys at Bridge are writing a hell of a show. And I think they're going to blow most of us away with hmm. Stargate Universe. I really think that it's going to be something that that is just out of this world. We'll be excited to hear your complete interview with Brian later this week. The Main Discussion So I've titled our main discussion for this week, Atlantis Deconstructed. This is now that the show has come to an end. We've got five seasons, 100 episodes. We want to look back and see if it delivered on its quote-unquote promises. The show came out in 2004, and it's really extended the Stargate franchise from what we knew and loved in SG-1 and has has brought it a different face and a different tone and a different flavor in some respects. So uh, our, our thoughts on where Atlantis hit and missed over the last five years. David, do you have anything to add before we jump into this? I think it's important to note that all fans are not going to agree with things that we say tonight, and that's fine. You know, they're perfectly welcome to say, you're wrong. You know, that I, I don't agree with you at all, sure. which is fine. Tonight's podcasts like most podcasts are are about my viewpoint and your viewpoint and it's simply not possible for us to weigh all the options and cover all the bases in 30 minutes yeah and and we should also say that at the end of the day we are fans of the show we do gate world because we love the show and so uh, the critiques that we have to offer uh, i think come from our love of the show and our love of the franchise and what we hope it would be, ideally. I'm not going to 
get on a podcast and and talk for an hour critiquing a show like Laguna Beach or Ugly Betty because I I don't watch those shows. I'm not a fan of those shows. It's because I love Stargate so much that I'm interested in sort of critiquing it. It means that we care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't do the podcast. Yeah. Now, a couple of other points to, to bring up here at the beginning. Let's consider Atlantis for what it is. Atlantis is has always been an action-adventure show. Uh, it's not a heavy drama like uh, a Battlestar or a Lost. Uh, it tends to be rather episodic, so it's, it's usually not really very arc-focused. So, you know, you can level those critiques about Atlantis. There's not enough character mm-hmm. drama. Um, there's, there's not enough story arcs. Um, but, but let's also look at, at Atlantis for what it is. Yeah, I think more than SG-1... Atlantis was a Saturday morning popcorn show. You know, that's yeah. that's always what it was to me. And then the other point that I wanted to make is that you and I have been fans of, of SG-1 since the very beginning. So our, our love of Stargate goes back well over a decade now. And we end up, I've, I've noticed, especially as we've been doing this podcast, that we end up judging Atlantis by the standard that SG-1 set. Yes. Um, and that, Atlantis is a different show, and that may not be entirely fair, and I think it also might explain a bit why some people who have come into Stargate with Atlantis and, and were Atlantis fans before they were SG-1 fans um, don't necessarily see the same flaws in the show that you and I would point to. What I take from that is if you're going to create a new spinoff, you want to make the spinoff at least as good as, if not better than, its original. So that's how I've always judged Atlantis. That may be wrong, but that's how I've always judged it. Yeah, but it's also relative. As good as well, is, is well, the, the show is, is a different show. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's all relative, but that's we have to view the show through someone's set of eyes, and they generally uh, turn out to be our own eyes. <laughs> so here's my first point of, of critique that I want to talk about. When Atlantis first started up, it was a mission to a distant galaxy. We have this opening scene in Rising where Weir and Shepard and, and everyone gets together in the SGC gate room to go through and not knowing if they are ever coming home, not knowing if they're ever going to talk to their loved ones again. And Atlantis was separated from Earth and from Stargate Command for the entire first season. And of course, there were a lot of criticisms early on that it was going to be Stargate Voyager, you know, trying to find our way home was going to be the entire theme of the show. Uh, and the writers never intended that to be the entire show. It was just the first season, it's it's kind of a way mm-hmm. to separate it and set it apart from SG-1. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it ended up still, even after we got back in touch with Earth and had ships that could travel back and forth, if the show was maybe still too separated from Earth. Uh, and the reason I say that is because one of the things we've talked about uh, Stargate is innately is it's us. It's real people uh, like you and me from the present day, Earth and Earth military, going out there and, and fighting aliens and having these amazing adventures. Um, by sticking the show in this separate galaxy and having it that disconnected from Earth, there was kind of an absence of the familiar, I think. this is mm-hmm. uh, It's kind of an esoteric point, but think about the fact that, that SG-1 saved the planet Earth so many times, uh, and it was only in the final episode of, of Atlantis that we actually were, were defending Earth directly from Atlantis' enemy, the Wraith. Well, we have to remember the whole reason why they said it in the Pegasus Galaxy. SG-1 was still ongoing, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to create a situation where, well, we're in a problem, let's call SG-1. That's exactly what they went to avoid. Yeah. And that's exactly why they cut them off the first season, so that they could test their mettle and, and prove themselves. You know, that, that was the reason that they did that. Did it work? Did it not work? You know, that's that's certainly a open to to consider i believe for the most part it worked you know i admit that on this point i'm probably a bit hypocritical because then when we do come back and do earth-based episodes like uh outcast in season four uh they end up not really being my favorite episodes because they feel un-atlantis there was a charm about atlantis in its first season being on its own there was a charm to it you know, there were, I mean, the storm in the eye, you know, it was that those were great episodes where we can't just call upon the Daedalus to fix our problems, you know, or we can't just call on Earth to, to get a ZPM over here. You know, it was some real, we're on our own, we have to solve the problem stuff in the first season that the show lost as it moved on. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a big topic. Let's talk about the Wraith. These guys are very much not 
the Goa'uld. Some people love them, some people hate them, some people don't know what to think about them. Yeah. Over the course of the series, they, there's a change. Early on when they're introduced, or at least they make more use of their psionic powers. They can get into your head, mm-hmm. they can confuse you, throw you off. Um, they're really hard to kill. Yeah, they're extremely hard to kill. You shoot one with, with a bullet and it immediately gets back up and comes after you. Very mm-hmm. zombie-like, a very menacing quality about that. So that changes, then uh, we go from having the same actors playing the Wraith characters over and over again to now bringing in different actors. So the Wraith have different faces to them. Uh, they start getting names. We, we see the same Wraiths over and over again. So there, there's an evolution to the Wraith throughout the show. In mid-season two, there's a Wraith war that begins and then goes off somewhere else in the galaxy and, and, and is ongoing in, in mention only. Yeah, now that's part of my part of my point about Earth is at the end of Rising when all the Wraith wake up, this was the great threat was they wake up because they've found out from Colonel Sumner about Earth, this rich yes. new feeding ground that they're all going to go out and look for. Uh, and I thought at the end of the pilot that that was going to be an ongoing theme was the Wraith were trying to find Earth. And with the exception of uh, the season two finale and the season three premiere, uh, allies and no man's land that was never really a threat the wraith were never anywhere near being able to find earth let alone being able to get there and it seemed like a lot of the time they were relatively content to stay within their own galaxy and torture the primitive human populations you know with great episodes like condemned you know turning the uh, the population and feeding problem on the humans rather than letting the wraith deal with them my biggest beef about the wraith though and i've i've said this on the podcast before is that they didn't have any personality like the Gual. There were so many bright, colorful characters like Apophis and Anubis and you and Nirti and Zapakna. Uh, and we knew, you know, all these guys had their different loyalties and their different motivations. With the Wraith, it, uh, until some of the characters like Todd came along, it was just they didn't have names. You know, it was, it was funny for a while when we were giving them names like Bob. Um, that was great yeah. in season one. Uh, but but still, they they were... Instead of a of an enemy that you could really get your hands around, they were just sort of a, a big giant nameless, a nameless evil hive force. force. Yeah, and this relates to to one of the other points that we have later on is they only tow the water when it comes to the wraith discovering who they could be besides human eating monsters. You know, the, you have Todd raising. Uh, the poignant question, you know, when when we no longer feed on humans, who will we be? But it really feels like in the end, when you look back at the show as a whole, it really feels just like a token interjection. They weren't really interested in exploring who the Wraith could be as creatures that did not feed on humans, where mm-hmm. they could have gone sociologically, where they could have gone in directions of art and culture and science. And they were, they were monsters. Yeah, they, they had were no monsters. culture. They were monsters. That's all that they were. That's all that they fundamentally really were right up into the end. There was no episode that dealt with any particular wraith trying to go into a different direction. That's one of the wonderful things that I loved about Star Trek Voyager with the Herogen. Mm. They weren't just a hunting force. In the episode The Killing Game, we met one of the hunter alphas who was more interested in preserving his culture and the future of his culture's identity than just killing, killing, killing. We see this a little bit again in Condemned, you know, that, that great scene between the Elysian Magistrate and that particular Wraith. We never see anything like that quite again. Yeah, with a few exceptions from Todd. And, you know, I don't mind exactly. this necessarily. I don't mind the Wraith being a kind of a nameless force that's just sort of, of monsters that we constantly have to deal with. If they were maybe not the sole bad guys in the Atlantis universe, or at least not the the main villains for the show. If we had introduced the Wraith and then the Replicators and the evil Asgard and the the Janai and and just sort of built all this this together, I think I would have found the Wraith more satisfying as opposed to having a nameless force that is the primary antagonist. Yes, I agree with you there. I think the nameless force should probably be left as a background overarching nemesis but you want the really interesting ones up in front that's why they introduced the replicators in season three of of sg1 that was a nameless ultra powerful force but they never were front and center they only helped to enhance stories like the gold arc especially namely in season eight you know like that but that's all that we had from the wraith from day one enemies like the janai rose and fell and and worked and didn't but the wraith were always there but were they particularly strong as a as a primary nemesis? That's up to the fan to decide. I love the last couple seasons of the show, 
and the arcs that were running about about the Wraith Replicator War and the Wraith Retrovirus story in season five, where we could we could give them this treatment, and they wouldn't have to feed on humans anymore. These are really interesting stories. But at the end of the day, again, the Wraith were not particularly powerful. It was their numbers. That's the reason they defeated the Ancients, was just their sheer numbers. Uh, they were just a force that kept coming at you and at you and at you, not because they were technologically advanced. So when we continue to hand them defeat after defeat, then, eh, how threatening are they? But to be fair, the Wraith worked when you had individuals like Todd. My only disappointment in that area was there were not more characters like Todd. Like I alluded to in, in the uh, Outsiders podcast this year, you had Todd, yes, but you didn't have Kevin who would come in every once in a while with his own different motives. And you didn't have George who came in every once in a while with his different motives. And Kevin and George and Todd didn't play off one another. It was just Todd. And as amazing and delightful, and I love him, uh-huh. as Christopher Heyerdahl is, the show deserved more than just the Wraith entity as a group and Todd. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like they introduced that character in season three and didn't try to do more with it because they they got it they got it with Todd. Oh yeah, we see that, and we they got it with Michael. What you say there is exactly one of the reasons why I love the Queen from season five was because Todd was now interacting with other Wraith. He was going and interacting with this this other Hive Queen, and I thought, man, this this character, this new Hive Queen, could be really interesting, and and the dynamic of of her and Todd, and then Todd kills her. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about our team. This is the big the big uh, elephant in the room, I think. Especially those of us who are fans of SG-1 have, have sort of criticized the team uh, and the fact that the writers end up writing beloved characters out of the team uh, and the question of whether or not the team necessarily ever had the same chemistry that, that Jack and Daniel and Sam and Teal had. I'd like to throw this in first. Uh, Stargate Command had 24 SG units. We saw that their patch had SG-24 written on it, so there had to have been 23 other units behind them. Yep. How many teams did Atlantis have? Do you know? We know Lorne had a team. And Shepard had a team, but who else? Was there ever any effort to explain how many teams were out there wandering around the galaxy doing work? There weren't, and I think it's because there were no set reconnaissance teams doing regular missions like there were from from Stargate Command. It was just sort of as need came up. I was always expecting Shepard's unit to be given a designation ATL-1 or something like that. I mean, so so what? It doesn't sound great, but Mm -hmm. neither did SG-1 at the very beginning. You know, we just kind of acclimated to it. That was one of the the sticky things that I was always expecting that they would explain, and and they just never went there. But I I like your explanation where, to use a gaming term, the team spawned as needed. You know, looking at Shepard's team and, and our main cast of characters on the show, I think at the end of the day, my feeling about it is that they didn't have quite the natural chemistry. We've talked about that peer scene between Shepard and Rodney uh, in the shrine and how I felt that that was really the first time that that their friendship had come out, Um, that before it was like they were two acquaintances who were working together and had some respect for each other. And as I look back on 100 episodes, I think that the stories that our, our characters went through and the threats that they faced were, for the most part, largely external to the characters, as opposed to episodes like need from uh, season two of SG-1, which is Daniel getting addicted to the sarcophagus, uh, or episodes like Secrets, where Sam uh, encounters her father and has to, to basically uh, you know, tell him, no, I don't want to, to be an astronaut, and I can't tell you why. These are some of the, the internal conflicts that our characters in SG-1 went through early on that seemed to me on Atlantis to be kind of few and far between. There was a little bit about uh, you know, Rodney has a sister who's he is estranged from that comes up in season one in Hot Zone, uh, and a lot mm-hmm. of sort of of personal character things that come out in letters from Pegasus. But those don't end up being stories, and they don't end up being threats to our characters, really, until we start getting deeper and deeper into the series when we get to episodes like McKay and Mrs. Miller. For the most part, it's just kind of our group of four or five people going out there and facing you know, bad guys, or something's going to explode, or we need more power. It's it's, it's storylines and you know, inciting incidents and threats that mm-hmm. are external to them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's why they didn't necessarily have the chance to flesh out who their characters are internally and to gel with one another. Yeah, there wasn't a great deal of internal strife at the beginning. I mean, you have an episode like Outcast in season four where we find out that Shepard is a spoiled little rich boy who, who couldn't really find his way, you know, but... 
that's really a little too late. One of the things that I continually think about when I hear Amanda and Michael and Christopher speak on stage is something that's kind of like a little miracle in itself. Those three found each other while they were auditioning, Mm -hmm. and they had a natural chemistry with one another because they themselves were attracted to one another without the characters doing anything. They found themselves after their auditions, and they formed mm-hmm. a connection. Even before they won the roles. They found themselves attracted to one another, and then they just happened to win the roles. There was no natural chemistry between these guys in that case. From my viewpoint, they always managed to keep themselves at arm's length, kept it business. That was just the way it was. Yeah. And by the time season three came around, the writers noticed that this was not happening naturally, and yeah. they had to deliberately write scenes where they showed compassion to one another. Now, not only did they deliberately have to do that, but it didn't really seem like it was real. It felt like they were being forced to to show compassion toward one another. You look at the first season of SG-1, an episode like Bloodlines, where Michael Shanks is faced with that tank of plastic snakes, the snakes that have taken over his wife, and you see the pain in Carter's eyes that he's feeling, even after he shoots that tank and destroys it. Mm-hmm. You see that there is a connection between them. You didn't see that with this team. And even though they had to write it in, start writing it in in season three, it didn't really seem to work. They were artificially forcing it. This wasn't coming out naturally. That's a good point about Daniel and uh, how his character was set up in Children of the Gods with with his wife and his brother-in-law being taken as hosts. Atlantis didn't really have that internal motivation for a lot of its characters. I thought early on that that was going to be Taylor. That, that she had lived a life of uh, being under oppression of this, you know, oppression of the worst kind by the yeah. Wraith. For her, for her people and for her entire galaxy, that came out a little bit early on in episodes like Suspicion and The Gift in season one. But as it went on, that didn't really seem to be what her character was about anymore. Through the most of the episodes that she was involved with, it, it, it felt like she was always just a ping pong paddle in a circle of exposition. You know, where she was just someone to ask a question or to stick in a comment. That's what it felt like from the day to day. Well, now let's talk a little bit about underused characters. And and I don't have any problem saying, again, I think Taylor was far, far underused for this show. It's almost like like we didn't necessarily know what to do with her after that Mm -hmm. first season. Uh, Mm -hmm. And also Ronan... You know, the Ford issue is an important issue that we'll talk about in a minute, but but when Ronan came on to the show in season two, I thought he was a great addition. His character was so interesting, that that sense of danger, you never know what he's going to do, who he's going to pull out Mm -hmm. his gun and shoot. But once we get past that initial getting to know him and the kind of guy that he is in episodes like Runner and Trinity... Uh, I think Ronan was underused as well. They kind of covered what his purpose was and then didn't really go into it anymore. And they just kind of went back to Shepard and Rodney being the favored sons. I was looking forward to there being some really interesting background stuff between Ronan and Taylor, but it, it just felt like they were used as window dressing. And Martin Garrow went out of his way to create a scene in the season three finale, First Strike. I'm not very useful in situations like this, where mm-hmm. they, they obviously recognize that this was the case. You know, they aren't... Not everyone is useful in every situation, but in every yeah. episode of, say, Enterprise, everyone had their part to play. We don't write them out of an episode just because we don't have anything to do for them. If that's the case, write them out of the show and bring in someone who has something to do. Yeah, I have a hard time criticizing the writers on this point, though, because those characters really work well in certain situations. You can't do yes. certain kinds of episodes without them. The Warriors, the, the Pegasus Galaxy natives. But yeah, Atlantis does tell those different kinds of stories. It tells... You know, running around on a on a Pegasus Galaxy planet, uh, where we need those guys, we need Ronan's muscle or or Taylor's connections, and then it also tells stories that are, are based on Atlantis, based on a ship that are very tech driven, uh, where you've got to really think creatively to to find something for them to do, like uh, we did with Taylor in the Daedalus variations, giving her training on how to run basic functions on the ship. Which I give them credit for doing. You know, that was a nice little touch. Because you didn't just want her standing around. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's kind of a symptom of of wanting to tell different kinds of stories. You don't want to tell every single episode of, of Atlantis being, well, we're walking through the forest on a different Pegasus planet. So now how about dumping some of our main characters? We lost Ford after one season. We lost Beckett towards the end of season three. Uh, mm-hmm. He wasn't a regular at the beginning, but he worked out so well, and Paul McGillian did such a great job, uh, and he became such a fan favorite that they made him a regular in season two. 
And then, of course, at the beginning of season four, we write off Elizabeth Weir. Um, this mm-hmm. is a major issue. Uh, SG-1 went six into its sixth year before it lost a main cast member, and then he came back. So, um, you know, we've gone five years of Atlantis and lost, by my count, three main cast members. You know, Lost, I said, was one of my favorite shows, and they kill off main characters all the time. I mean, they have a huge ensemble of 12 or 15 main characters uh, that they can do that with. Stargate's never been that. We've we've had this core team of five or six people. As as we've lost these main characters uh, who we've we've gotten to know and, and become invested in, I've never really felt like that was necessarily a story decision to write them off. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you mm-hmm. you kill off the leader of the expedition, that's that's huge. And if I got the sense that that, that those sorts of decisions had been because uh, sitting in the writers' room, it just decided. It just seemed like the best creative move to make. Uh, I can I can live with losing main characters, but it always seemed like there was kind of a behind-the-scenes story that, that fans are never necessarily going to get to know. You're exactly right. It's not a story-influencing decision. This is not something that came out of, of the story improving. This is something that came out of a behind-the-scenes issue that needs to be fixed, and the story's going to have to change as a, as a result. <laughs> We come to the main character of all, which is, in my opinion, Atlantis itself. This is not Stargate McKay. This is not Stargate Shepard, Stargate Weir. This is Stargate Atlantis. Before the show premiered, uh, the producers were talking about the show. Obviously, they had not even written these scripts yet. Um, but they talked about Atlantis really as, as a character of the show that we were going to get to know. I remember Joe Flanagan telling me a few years ago that Atlantis was going to be a creature that was going to evolve. It's going to have a conscience, maybe not maybe not a conscious in the strictest of terms, but we were going to have feeling for this creature and watch it evolve. And then I remember talking to someone once and them saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. And how it just cut me to the quick. I was like, well, that would have been a really cool idea, you know, where you have your main city actually be a character. I have always wanted Atlantis to be a character. I have always wanted Atlantis to have a voice. Yeah, share your idea here. This is really cool. I never watched Andromeda, but I knew that the, there was an element of Andromeda to this idea. I always felt that Atlantis's voice should be Milia. Milia was introduced to us in the pilot episode of Atlantis Rising. She was the Atlantis historian who we were introduced to directly in Before I Sleep. I always thought after seeing that pilot that Milia would come back and would be the holographic voice not always necessarily in physical form but in the computer form like Majel Barrett on Star Trek she would be the computerized conscience of Atlantis and she would be someone that was a living being or at least a super advanced AI an AI that would have moods and have good days and bad days and really be the heart and soul of Atlantis but the best that we got of that was Rodney McKay interpreting what was going wrong with the city. I mean, lights were going off or, you know, the, the power was, mm-hmm. was fluctuating or whatever. With the occasional discovery, the, the, the occasional, you know, pretty vista to look over, you know, we had some great shots of the city, uh, like uh, Lorne painting the city. Atlantis itself really never was a character for me. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the bigger hits. Now think about how cool this idea would have been if we would have had uh, an interactive AI construct for Atlantis. Uh, if you look at episodes like Quarantine in season four, where where the Quarantine Protocol kicks off and and shuts down the city and locks everybody in, if you add that Atlantis personality to that, where the Atlantis character has decided to shut down the city because it's perceived a danger, and now we have to convince her that the danger is not real or is not sufficient enough to convince her directly. Yes. Yeah, and and then you've got you introduce a, a relationship between her and McKay, and between her and Zelenka. I think you could have done some really interesting things there. You know, what if McKay, or to play it a little more cute, what if what if Radic had kind of fallen in, in love with her a little bit? Literally falling in love with Atlantis, and she, Melia, as a character, could have different moods for different characters. Could give certain characters access to different things that one couldn't get out of her, and that would have saved a huge amount of time with exposition. A lot of the episodes of Atlantis were about what's going on, what's happened, what are we doing? We have to figure out what it is. Yeah. You know, and it wastes a lot of opportunity for character development when we're just strictly trying to figure out what's going on. And it foists a lot of dialogue onto David Hewlett. That sort of character could have potentially shared. Exactly. And and Melia could have given us those answers and we could have moved on with the story. You know, Man. while still learning 
about Atlantis and its journey and where it came from and what it's had to put up with so many years alone. Yeah, this is one of those ideas that I think is so cool. And obviously, I, I don't fault the, the creators of the show for not coming up with this idea. But I think it's one of those ideas that's so cool that and, it makes you go back to every episode in the past and think about, well, if that had been the case, how would that Atlantis character have been affected in The Return? by the ancients coming back and taking over the city and sending our team back to earth maybe she's you know she's gotten to know our people and she's you know regrets the fact that the ancients are forcing them back to earth but it's probably too much like andromeda which is a shame you know because i I, I, that's all i thought about when i saw that pilot i was like ooh, this is this hologram is going to be a character that i'm really looking forward to getting to know and and andromeda was still running when the show started so i understand if even if that sort of concept came up that it might have been disregarded well another character on the show is the stargate itself um oh don't get me started (laughs) the show has gotten some criticism i think from you and me perhaps most vocally that they just didn't use the stargate enough once you introduce the ships it's a whole new ball game i'd like to interject here you know this is something that we're going to talk about in a future podcast but like they did with midway space station i'd like our naquita reserves to run dry so that we can no longer do any hyperspace travel so Mm. that the ships can only be local yeah. And really bring back the purpose for the Stargates. Great episodes where, you know, a ship can't come in and save us. And Jack is stranded across the other side of the galaxy where the Stargate's been frozen under a meteorite. Those were great shows. And there was an innocence about Stargate SG-1 that Atlantis lost when the Daedalus started coming in and ferrying people back and forth. And to be fair, I think it happened in SG-1 as well. Um, and again, we've got a podcast coming up. Uh, in the next few weeks where we want to talk about this issue specifically. So we won't blow it all here, but but I think that Atlantis is is a very different animal in its use of the gate. Um, you pointed out to me episodes very early on, like 38 minutes, were a, a Stargate Dilemma episode. And those yes. are really fun, episodes like uh, SG-1 Season 2 is a matter of time uh, with a time dilation effect through the gate. Um, yeah, we're specifically talking about Stargate dilemmas here. Yeah, a dilemma with the gate itself. Those are really fun episodes that that force our characters to think creatively and to rely on their wits uh, as opposed to their technology. Well, it's a sci-fi concept, and it's a concept that you can only do in a certain way with a Stargate. And for Atlantis, the only episode that did that was 38 Minutes, which to this day is one of my favorite episodes. They just tapered off. It's like they ran out of ideas to, for things to do with the Stargate. But I... Me personally, I have a lot of unanswered questions. There, there could be a lot of interesting stories with, for instance, when, you, when, the, when the Stargate opens and the Kawoosh happens and it closes, everyone walks through the front of the gate. What happens if you go around to the back side of the gate and go through that way? Hmm. Where do you go? What happens? You know, little things like that that have never been explained or just explored. As much as I like the stories that we did end up telling, you know, I'm a sci-fi fan. I love spaceships. Uh, I love, you know, being able to fly through space gates with the puddle jumper. That was one of my favorite things about the pilot Agreed. episode was space gates and, and yes. that, that combat scene with Wraith darts. As much as I like those sorts of elements, I do feel at the end of the day that that Atlantis drifted too far away from the the core storytelling device of the franchise, which is the gate. Well, the gate became only one of many forms of travel at that point. It wasn't necessarily even the primary point of travel anymore. Uh, you, you had an, a number of episodes where where it was just the ships only, which is fine, but at the end of the day, it really needs to come back to the Stargate front and center. You know, And I think one of the telltale signs of that was they never, they never built an off-world gate. They might have this past season, a, a parts of it, but they never built an off-world gate for the set. For shooting on location, they had that Stargate that was built into a pedestal that was always in the background, was out of focus in character scenes, but it was a character. It was in your ear. It was speaking to you. And when you make it CGI, you make it expensive for it to appear on screen, and you can't always have it. I read at some point an online review of an episode of SG-1, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. It might have been Avalon the season nine premiere. And I wrote an editorial about how that reviewer had, I th- in my opinion, basically gotten it wrong in criticizing the show for what it was, what it was doing. Criticizing Stargate as, as a lot of media outlets do as just being kind of brainless sci-fi popcorn fare. I made a statement on, on Gate World that, um, you know, Stargate is 
is an action adventure show. That's what it is by genre, um, and it's it does a lot of kind of fun sci-fi popcorn stories. But that's not all that it is. It does much much more, and it does some really fantastic, dramatic, character-driven pieces. Uh, like this year, like The Shrine, or or back then, I was thinking of of Abyss in season six. Uh, and Rob Cooper actually read it and emailed me uh, and thanked me for saying it because Stargate does kind of get the short shrift as as being mindless popcorn fare when it does so much more. They're not watching it long enough to to see those those really cool episodes like The Shrine. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I mean, Rob did say again, this is an action adventure show. That's the genre that we're operating in. It's not Battlestar Galactica. Now, recognizing Atlantis for what it is as an action adventure show, I do still think at the end of of a hundred episodes of Atlantis that Atlantis in particular has suffered a bit uh, in terms of the character development and the relationship development. Uh, as as you said earlier, the fact that the writers sort of discovered in season three that they needed to start writing character moments more deliberately. It seemed like Atlantis, more than SG-1, sort of suffered from we need to move the plot along. Here's one of my biggest issues with the show overall. This is not necessarily even Atlantis-specific. I think it's, again, something that SG-1 faced in its later years especially, which is that uh, storylines are introduced and then not paid off because we set up storylines or characters that the writers want to maybe come back and revisit later if if the right idea comes up. And we've heard mm-hmm. them say this. Um, you know, we left Ford's final fate unspecific in case we come up with a great Ford story and want, want to bring him back. We don't know that he's dead. That's an approach to storytelling that, that I find very frustrating because a lot of those don't come back. If they do come back, then I'm I'm all for it. Sure, leave dangling threads, that's great. But I think that when you leave a dangling thread and I'm thinking of Ford specifically in The Hive, I think it, it gives you a responsibility to come back and bring resolution to that. I, as a, as a fan, feel kind of jerked around. And sci-fi, in, in the sci-fi genre, there's no reason to do that. Go ahead. Kill Ford. Kill him. Mm-hmm. You know, Bring resolution to that character. And then clone him and bring him back. There's a million explanations for how you can bring a story back if you really want to. Until then, give it some kind of resolution. I'm not saying to just kill everyone, but reassign him. Do something like that. Don't just leave it out in the open. You know, We've become attached to this character. We've, we want to see what happens to them. This is important to me as a viewer, you know, that I, I want to see what's, what's happened to this kid because I care about him and I care about what he's gone through. And just to, just to leave him out there dangling. And Martin Garrow was really good to bring that up in the first episode of this season where he specifically brought back Rainbow to say, you left me out there. You know, so that was a good nod. That was that was them recognizing that yes, we are trying to do the best show that we can. And Ford was one of those people that got dropped. So some of this is the fact that storylines don't get tied up, and some of it is just that they end up not being as important as I thought they would be. I mm-hmm. think about things like the Jedi Alliance and uh, those developments with Laden in uh, Coup d'État in season two, uh, and then uh, the Asurans who turn out to be replicators. Bringing the Travelers in Season 4, I thought that they were going to be a bigger deal. They only showed up a couple times after that. Michael's Hybrids, and again, we've talked this season about the evil Asgard. Those are things that the writers injected uh, that didn't end up being as important to Atlantis' mythology as I expected them to be at the time. Again, I think a lot of it is is just because Atlantis tells its stories in a different way than something like Lost or Babylon 5 or Battlestar that specifically have an end point and they're they're writing to that finish. Um, mm-hmm. Stargate is is an open canvas, and it's what stories can we tell in this open canvas. So for that reason, the writers like leaving out those dangling story threads. And you know it's fine. I understand we we were going to revisit the evil Asgard in a season six, and didn't get a season six. Hopefully they'll come back in a movie because they're so cool. You know a main character like Ford. I've, I, it really feels like if you leave that loose end, you, you need to come back and tie it up. <laughs> And then you've got this issue of moral dilemmas. You know, I, I think um, SG-1 delib- has faced them in a different way than Atlantis, and I'm accustomed to SG-1, how they face them. You have episodes like like Scorched Earth, you know, and, and Red Sky, where we specifically go out of our way and ask the question, is this wrong? You know, what we're doing, are we thinking too quickly about this? And, and the wonderful unnatural selection where we beat ourselves over the head for a few minutes about leaving Fifth behind, and mm-hmm. later we come back and we have to pay for it. Like we've exhausted it again and again. If we need to kill the humanoid replicators for our own survival because they're not doing their job, it's much more exciting to just blow them up instead of reprogramming them. 
So because it's much more exciting, we're going to do it that way, regardless of whether or not it's the right thing to do. Yeah, this is when you've got the Wraith, who are you know life-sucking monsters, who who don't seem to have any culture or civilization that we know of. Again, I can understand mm-hmm. it a little bit more. They are bad guys who need to be taken out. Well, they're locusts. Castle Wolfenstein style, get your shotgun out, it's time to go wraith hunting. But when you're talking about the Asurans, we don't call them Asurans after their introduction. We call them replicators because we think of them as this mindless scourge. They're little bugs. They're just much, much more advanced forms of them. So we can take their 10,000 years of history and culture and chuck it. And crush it into a nice little neutronium ball. <laughs> it makes for a really cool episode. And again, Be All My Sins Remembered is is one, one of my, my favorites. top two favorite episodes out of 100. And that climax is really cool. But after having watched Moral Dilemma episodes like Red Sky and Scorched Earth, you got to kind of scratch your head and say, is this the right thing to do? I sound like Daniel. Is it the right? Th- when he gained their technology? Yes. But is it the right thing to do? Yeah, that's uh, The Other Side, season four. Yes, there's another great one. So Genocide of the Replicators, uh, the use of Fran in that episode, if, if we've created a person, if she is a person, is she sentient? Does she have rights? Even if she wants to be used that way, is it right for us to use her? Uh, what are the mm-hmm. rules of conducting a just war? You know, there are there are philosophers out there and ethicists who spend their careers talking about the concept of a just war and how it it can and should properly be conducted and is there any such thing as a just war when you're fighting against the wraith who are a homicidal animalistic species that is out to to suck the life out of you um does that change the definition of what a just war can be Mm -hmm. and those are those are questions that that atlantis never really seems to me to get into with those rare exceptions like like todd philosopher todd uh, who really elevated the show. Uh, but it's just a few scattered moments, I think. I would have appreciated Atlantis a lot more at the end of the day if it had asked those questions. Well, they touched on it with Fran and Be All My Sins Remembered, and that is one of my favorite moments of the show when they do that, you know? And Fran is saying, hey, it's what i got to do. Just get over it. Rodney, yeah. what's your problem? I've got to do this. <laughs> so looking back on five years and 100 episodes, this is a show that's meant a tremendous amount to both of us. What do you think would have made Stargate Atlantis a stronger show? Well, Darren, listen to the past 45 minutes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the point at which you uh, recap. And condense everything into a nice little neutronium ball. That's right. I would have liked more of the city itself. Like I said with Milia, that's 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 one of the, the bigger hitting things that I have about that. Um, I would have liked more of an attempt to integrate our characters with each other. Rather than spending so much time about the Wraith are coming, the Wraith are coming, or the Wraith are going to Earth, or, you know, whatever political issue was going on outside of the city, you know. We spent so much time dealing with what was going on in the Pegasus galaxy and not nearly enough time dealing with what was going on with ourselves. Yeah, and that internal issue that I talked about with characters, um, it it really makes me hopeful looking at what the team is planning for Stargate Universe. As, as a more, completely agree. more dramatic, more character-based show, more internal conflict, more strife between the characters. Uh, I, I look at that stuff coming up for Universe, and I think, okay, they got it. They, they figured out that this is what we as fans and as viewers in general are more interested in seeing. Um, popcorn sci-fi is fun, and it's great, but it's, it's not what brings 10 million people to your show. Well, it's also kind of almost like a silent admission that we didn't get a great deal of this for Atlantis now, so we're creating a show that is specifically character-driven. It's always been about the characters. I mean, we, we fell in love with SG-1 in 1997, or whenever we started tuning in, uh, <laughs> because of, of the characters, because we loved Jack and Daniel and Teal'c and Sam and Hammond and Frasier, and, and their relationships with each other, I think, continued to compel us. Cue Iris. Listener mail. Well, that's what we think about Stargate Atlantis. Now we asked you to write in and tell us if you could go back in time five years and give one piece of advice to the writers, knowing what was ahead, what would you tell them? Quaid One says, giving the writers one piece of advice, I would have to choose between involving the city and Stargate in more episodes, or keeping the Wraith mysterious and not humanizing them, which totally ruined their guise as scary aliens. 
Sylvia says, I would have liked them to stick with the friendship and team bonding type relationships rather than the romance. That pretty much wrecked some of the later episodes of season five for me and made that very last scene in Enemy at the Gate very out of place and not team-oriented at all. Mac Jackson says, If I could go back five years and give the powers that be some advice, it would not be to give up on characters just because you have trouble writing for them, like Ford and Taylor. Avoid cliche sci-fi characters like Ronan, create more aliens so the wraith are not overused, and concentrate on the friendships between the characters. And Stargate Lover says, If I could go back five years, I wouldn't change anything. Sure, there have been a few mess-ups and some things that don't make sense, but what fun would it be if you had a perfect show? Sometimes the best shows or movies are the ones you can poke holes in. Thanks to everyone for writing in. Here's this week's listener question. Uh, Our February 3rd show is going to be our very first open line night. So uh, you guys are setting the topic. Tell us what you want to hear David and I talk about. Uh, Send us a, a good question or topic or try and stump us with some trivia. Anything that comes to mind that you want to hear us rattle on about for an hour. Open line night was something that I went out of my way to ask Darren about. He prefers scripts. He's very formulaic. He likes structure. He likes our main topic discussions to go from one idea to the next idea to the no. next idea. No, you're and not talking I about was, me. Yes, I am. I wanted an episode where we could just float the main discussion and not necessarily have a specific main topic, but go in and out of conversations. And I, I wanted to try to see how that would work if it's not always so scripted. You may learn a thing or two that you didn't know before about the franchise or something about us that uh, wouldn't have come up if we weren't so busy going from one bullet to the next. Yep. So open line night is perfect for that. I think it's a good idea, and if it's a, if it's a catastrophic failure, then it's your fault. We won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and do let us know what you think about that episode, because it'll determine whether or not we do it again. Yep. Then we'll come back on the 10th and go back to 1994 and talk about Stargate the movie. And on February 17th, GateWorld Forum's Tammy Farrar comes back to join us for a conversation about fan conventions. Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. We had a lot of fun talking about Stargate Atlantis. We want to hear your thoughts and your ideas for our next podcast. Give us a call on the podcast hotline at area code 616-712-1647 or head over to GateWorld Forum and post on the podcast feedback thread. In this episode, David and I deconstructed Stargate Atlantis and gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with Stargate Universe actor Brian J. Smith. For links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 27 show notes. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. And it's scripted that I'm David Reed. And you have been listening to the GateWorld podcast. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful.